Welcome to the first show of Collateral Banter. With me, your host, Danny T. Not really sure why I'm recording. <laughs> so instead of explaining the show, I think I've decided to just start ranting. And I needed to discuss Trump's recent tweet about meeting the new publisher for the New York Times. It was something I just have to rant about. And I'm not going to rant against Trump, although I'm tempted. I really have to rant against the New York Times. I really think people don't see what's happening or people do see what's happening but don't want to call it out openly so i'm gonna try to do that so salzberger releases a statement and i'm gonna read it to you and then i'm going to dissect and tell you what's wrong with it says, my main purpose for accepting the meeting with Trump was to raise concerns about the president's deeply troubling anti-press rhetoric. I told the president directly that I thought his language was not just divisive, but increasingly dangerous. I told him that although the phrase fake news is untrue and harmful, I'm far more concerned about labeling journalists the enemy of the people. I warned that this inflammatory language is contributing to a rise in threats against journalists and will lead to violence. I repeatedly stress that this is particularly true abroad, where the president's rhetoric is being used by some by some regimes to justify sweeping crackdowns on journalists. I warned that it was putting lives at risk, that it was undermining the democratic ideals of our nation, and that it was eroding one of our country's greatest exports, a commitment to free speech and a free press. Throughout the conversation, I emphasized that if President Trump, like previous presidents, was upset with the coverage of his administration, he was, of course, free to tell the world. I made clear repeatedly that I was not asking for him to soften his attacks on the Times if he felt our coverage was unfair. Instead, I implored him to reconsider his broader attacks on journalism, which I believe are dangerous and harmful to our country. The part that bothers me here is he says this, I'm going to repeat it. I warned that it was putting lives at risk, that it was undermining the democratic ideals of our nation, and that it was eroding one of the country's greatest exports, a commitment to free speech and a free press. Where have you been in the last year and a half in America? That's the point. <laughs> this is why I'm doing the podcast, because I'm losing my mind. <laughs> this is incredible. It, it's he. I, I swear to you, I disagree with, I think, almost all of Trump's policies. I can't think of ones that I probably agree with. I don't know. But he is, I think, on another level when it comes to politics. He is a, an amazing political creature. And I don't mean amazing necessarily in a good way, but in a, he is constantly constantly on the attack and knows how to say and manipulate and has in some ways conquered the media, uh, conquered the conversation. I mean, they just can't even watch TV anymore without hearing something about him. It's an obsession. It's 24-7, which was the goal. I mean, I think a lot of the way he campaigned was always to be in the news. I have to bring this up as my rant because when I hear people complaining that he's undermining the democratic ideals of our nation, of course he is. That's the point. That's the point. Trump knows, I mean, look at this. He's, he's smart enough to know that assuming the presidency means he really has to face three things. The people, the press, and the judiciary. And the people, he can manipulate and keep them off the streets, right? He can manipulate what they know through social media, through all of these things. Great. So he can kind of contain them, confuse them, keep them off bay, and keep them away from political power. That leaves him basically, I think, with two other structures to deal with. The press, okay? Which is looking to undermine him. So he's trying to do the same thing I think he did with the people by sending 
sending out fake news, sending out his own version of the news, sending out everything he wants. I mean, he'll purposely release information to confuse the media, to create enough doubt and self-doubt into all of our thoughts. It's, it's quite clever in a political way. It's devastating, but clever, right? I think most politicians wouldn't want to do that. They kind of believe in the democratic ideal. And this one, he's trying to confuse people in order to gain a political advantage somehow. It's, it's at least well manufactured uh, in doing this because you can confuse the people a lot of the time. <laughs> But I think he's doing this as well with the media. And I love the tweets here. It's the failing New York Times. But he still talks to them, right? He's still willing to give them an interview. He's trolling them. He's trolling people. And people to believe that his rhetoric is damaging the nation as if his intent is otherwise. It's not. That's his intent. His intent is to go after the press and the priest. Why? Why? Here's the real reason why. Attacking the press and confusing what the press does means people won't understand what's really going on, right? It, it protects him politically, eroding free speech and the press, keeps them away from Trump. Now when the press reports on Trump, he, Trump can say, do you really believe it? Is that a true story? Is that real? And no one knows anymore what's real or not real. A confusing era where people can't make sense of what's really going on, make sense of where we are right now. It's disorienting. And it's for a political strategy to do what you want to do. If you can confuse both the people and the press, you can keep spinning them around, then you can achieve your political end. And I think in that way, he's, Trump is successfully accomplishing his political objective. And so it just bothers me that journalists still believe that his goal is to further the press, to protect the press. Oh, he called, I mean, he basically calls them the enemy of the people, bad people. He'll use different names, he'll use different terms. But that's the point. The goal is to do that. I mean, it's what authoritarians do uh, most of the time. Like, I'll give you examples. But in countries like Hungary and in Poland, where maybe if you don't want to call them dictators, you want to call them semi-authoritarians, whatever. Their goal is to erode the press to erode people's belief and trust in the press. Now, it had been declining long before Trump. People didn't believe what the press was producing. It's manufactured, it's clickbait and things like this. But it's really telling that the press still believes that presidents elected will necessarily always toe the liberal line. And that I think is wrong. So that's my rant. Let me go on to the main point of this episode one. I have to talk about in this era of confusion and being disoriented. You have to understand where politics is today. And so I want to read to you from Prime Minister of Hungary, a speech in July 26, 2014. He said this. He says, very interesting. He's a very interesting person. I, I probably will do an episode on him. He was elected before Trump. He's rewritten the entire constitution of Hungary, and he has a vision for society. It's, it's, it's a significantly less liberal. Here's the speech. The defining aspect of today's world can be articulated as a race to figure out a way of organizing communities, a state that is most capable of making a nation competitive. This is why, honorable ladies and gentlemen, a trending topic in thinking is understanding systems that are not Western, not liberal, not liberal democracies, maybe even not democracies, and yet making nations successful. Today, the stars of international analysis are Singapore, China, India, Turkey, Russia. And I believe that our political 
community rightly anticipated this challenge. And if we think back on what we did in the last four years and what we're going to do in the following four years, then it really can be interpreted from this angle. We are searching for and we are doing our best to find ways of parting with Western European dogma, making ourselves independent from them. The form of organizing community that is capable of making us competitive in a great world race. So here's what he's really saying. Chinese illiberal model is a future model that the West needs to adopt. The rise of Asia, especially China, means that this sort of liberal democratic order is dying, it's fading, it's actually becoming harmful. And this is really intense in a wild period because to some degree, this is happening right now, right in front of us. And this is a radical, I think, departure. So so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to break this down. And I think we have to ask ourselves today in politics, instead of thinking about political parties or labels, I think we have to ask ourselves questions. The first question that we need to ask is, are we an internationalist or a nationalist? And what I mean by that is, do you believe in a cosmopolitan world where you can respect people's cultural difference, values, religions, morals, and all these, these things to, to respect and appreciate and see people who are different from you as just like you? Or do you see that there's a nationalist, a sort of hierarchical order? And here's the tension. Here's who I think right now is winning, but who has been winning for the last 30 years has been the sort of international order, right? We've, we've gone from at least the 90s. I was born in the 80s. I've experienced the 90s and 2000s, and there was this sort of dominant li international liberal order. And it's now in, a, I think, a crisis phase. It doesn't mean it's dead, but it is in a crisis and trying to grapple with the changes that are occurring. So here's the tension, I think, with this, is that we really need to understand the international and national in relation to capitalism, in that capitalism started nationally, but has gone global. In that movement, we now see a movement of capital goods and people. So if I had to say who was going to win in this battle between international and national, I'd say the internationalists have the upper hand. However, in today's world and in many countries, many of the largest countries of the world, the nationalists are making a rebound. And so it's going to be an interesting, I think, global struggle to see what happens, how these countries, how people react to this sort of nationalist order. And I really want to say that I think part of the nationalism is that countries are changing. Technology has allowed people to shift from one place to another. Thus, cultures are interacting unlike in ways before. There's always been interactions with cultures and people. I think what's happening now is there are significant increases in, in movement of people all around the world from nationalities, different cultures. And technology has allowed this. It, it, it's done more of the numbers than the fact that people are traveling. People have been traveling the globe thousands of years. So this, this really means that I, the world is going through sort of an identity Entity crisis, who we are as people. And I think I know where this ends. And it's crazy to say it, but I think it all the time when I'm dealing with this and grappling with this question. Nation states are going to matter a lot less. And this means there is an international global order being emerging from the breakdown of national identities and states and governments. And maybe I'm siding too much with the internationalist order of things, but I really think this this exists. And I think this international order is this sort of expecting that the nationalists will take, will take over for a while 
and then corruption and chaos will ensue and they will soon control from it and they will rebuild the international order where there will be some type of world order and world government of some sort but, but i really believe that a global world government world structures will emerge from this and i think that that's radical for people because modern nation states since treaty of westphalia that's the starting point we could even go before that is really beginning to break down countries production i think the fact that people have been producing goods now all across the globe they feel people feel connected this way has begun to erode these sort of national borders national identities that we have the election of obama signaled this demographic shift more diverse country racially and what it has elicited is a reaction from people against this order right people want to fight for this sort of hierarchical stability this sort of thing we had in the past that was very stable again people felt that this was very stable and people felt that there was this order that they was insisting on. And this order has been broken down in some ways. So yes, the first question is asking oneself, how do we value internationalism versus nationalism? And again, it isn't a perfect binary in any ways. But I think it's an important question when we begin to dissect political issues to really ask ourselves that question. But I want to say the second one, people don't ask in the individual and the collective rights. And I think that this debate is really interesting in where we are today, because both the far left and the far right are more collectivist in many ways than sort of the individual. And I think that having this tension is, is really interesting. We, we also see, though, global capitalism building off the individual. Today, an individual can be uh, dissected. Uh, and yet, we struggle with what our collective rights are, you know? And, and again, if we put this individual versus collective in the lens of international versus national, the nationalists very much believe in a collective identity, yet it has to be limited. Now, at least on the right, well, people on the left believe we have collective global rights, right? This is where people begin to say that you're workers and workers in the world unite in those things. So collectivized individuality, I think is really interesting to think about rights. However, I would say in the last... 25, 30 years, we've only seen our collective rights sort of collapse all across the world. And our individual rights for certain things grow. Individual rights over abortion, gay marriage, those things. And now we're starting to see, well, what are individual rights for certain religions? However, religion is somewhat of a collective identity. And I, I think it's going to lose out because I think what they what was winning in this struggle, although today it might feel the collectives and nationalists are in front, I actually think the individual and the sort of internationalist perspective are actually still in control and still dominant. So yes. And then, so the third question that I asked myself is what role does government have in intervention in the economy or does it intervene or deregulate the economy i think that that's like a critical question we don't ask ourselves in. and it really ties into the individual versus collective rights but you're seeing this right nationalists like trump want to have not to end trade but want to have what they call fair trade where you put the u.s interests ahead of other people's interests however if every country did this you would essentially destroy the global trade and the global economy that we have today and the international order would collapse and so that's the 
fear moment that I think everybody feels that is about to happen. And there's about to be a moment where it's all will break down. And I don't, I don't know how to make sense of all of that. I don't know um, how we will control all of that. I don't know where intervention and deregulation will go. However, right now, it's interesting. From Trump's perspective, he's deregulating because he sees in the U.S. because he's the president of the U.S. and so he'll make the United States more competitive globally. However, for the international global order, he's definitely willing to intervene. And so this is where I was saying this is not a binary. But I am only saying these questions because this is the way I have begun to break down the new political emerging politics in America and probably globally everywhere. Not through are they populists or not. I don't want to have that debate. But really, I, I see that you really have three camps. This doesn't fit everyone neat, but I want to think about it this way. There are three camps. I think what you see is like the, the what I call the far left, socialists and other radical groups. And I think they secretly agree with some of Trump's rhetoric on this sort of corrupt international establishment. They definitely think the whole Russia collusion thing is a way to start a war with Russia. And, I, and you've seen this with a lot of people who've been journalists, and here I'm thinking of Glenn Greenwald, others who have at least been skeptical of the narrative that Trump was directly involved with Russia. Doesn't mean that he doesn't believe it didn't happen. It's just been skeptical of the things that have been released in the media. And a lot of the people, I think, in this realm who definitely wouldn't describe themselves as liberal or moderate liberal or centrist Democrats, or they call sometimes corporate Democrats. Corporate Democrats are the ones who really believe in the Russia argument. And they believe that people want rules and free trade and diversity is great and international borders and immigrants should come in into the country. And I think that the far left Here's where it gets confusing. The far left believes in a sort of an international world where we give up intervention, but where people can come and go, right? That borders need to be broken down. And I think in this way, you can now think of global free-flowing, global capitalism aligning with the left on that front, right? There's an intersection there where, yes, goods are flowing, capital's flowing, so why can't people flow? And I think for the nationalists, they believe this is ultimately the destruction of the state. And I'll bring it back to Orban, who believes that, no, I need to protect my community and we need to be less liberal and we need to be less inclusive of other cultures and we need to adopt some of the interventionist, the sort of statist model of intervention a la China and Singapore, where the state state very much is going to protect you, take care of you, but in a collective sense, but they want to limit who that collective is. And I and I think we have to see that in some ways, the election of Trump has broken down the hegemony of moderates and the establishment and this international order, this moderate. And here I can include both Democrats and Republicans in a sense. They'll debate some of the minor points of how far the government should go and how far the free market should go, but they ultimately agree on many Many of the principal issues that trade is good that people should come um the people who don't come here without visas still should be respected because they're human beings even if there should be a pathway to citizenship and there was almost an inclusive international establishment in america that very much wanted immigration reform bush wasn't against it again he comes from texas the politics there are a little different um than i think other politics um in conservative circles are so again they tend to agree on many of the finer points about where we are today and then i have to talk about the last group here and 
I will say, is the far right. And they have become into prominence today with the election of Trump, but also Orban in Poland and in India and in the Philippines and many other countries. I won't list them all. But again, they have a nationalistic perspective on the world. They see the international order, economic and political, as dangerous, as eroding the national rights of a country. And really, I, I think Russia here has been leading this charge for a while. Russia believes that the, this global order is essentially destroying nations and people and that the West is on some suicide course. And the only way to prevent it is to reestablish hierarchical norms, as they would see it, as tradition, as religion, bringing that back, as taming these sort of liberal excesses. And right now, they're winning in many ways. They've, they've damaged many things. Even if Trump were removed in the next months or so, and a new liberal president was elected and they were digging on Russia, there's been significant damage, I think, to the psyche and logic of where the country is today. But again, what did Russia use as a weapon technology the openness of the liberal sort of order of the liberal production of the liberal things that you can talk about in the world they used it against the very liberal order that existed i think this this comes down to a belief i think within the russian elite that the collapse of the Soviet Union wasn't just something that happened internally to Russia, that it, but the West made it worse. The West punished and wanted to crush Russia, broke up Russia, lost a third of its population and geographical size. And so that the, the collapse of the Soviet Union was this painful period on the Russian people, on the Russian psyche. And now it's time for a sort of revenge. And the wealth from high oil prices and developing a long-term strategy and plan as long as they maintained political stability. And again, they got away from sort of the government having to manage and control things. They've adopted this illiberal order that I read from you from Orban's speech. Really makes you think that they are now on the offensive. They've seen the chaos. They're going to try to bring the chaos that happened to them to the West. And in some ways, that's the only way that the liberal order will be defeated. And so they want the chaos to happen here in the United States. They want those things to 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 crumble, just like the Soviet Union suffered. If that were to happen, I will tell you that we would be suffering, I think, because the liberal economic system exists to go back into a nationalist front. I mean, we're talking about a global depression for a very long time, for many, many, many years. And I'm not saying that and laughing, but I am saying that as collapsing world trade in order will create a poverty that we have not seen in decades, maybe since 1929. I, I think that that period, and it led to war. I know that there's a book that I should probably discuss called The Fourth Turning, but if the nationalists can break down the international order, it'd be interesting to see the sort of economic and social and cultural consequences that would happen to the society, because it would be traumatic beyond anything we've experienced right now. I don't want to leave it on this depressing order, but, but it's, it's what is definitely in play. And people are worried about losing democracy um rebuilding the economic structures would take time it took it took a long time to get to where people feel are today but you sort of feel that hey will this internationalist order take over again it's possible look who's on top now from what everything i described you could say the nationalists and their 
collective populist conservative wings. But you know what? 10 years ago in the 2000s in Latin America, it was this new wave of, le of left-wing governments were in power. And people at that time didn't say, hey, we're all freaking out that democracy is collapsing. So things do fluctuate. Who's in charge? Who's in power, right? What's really happening? It, I, I'm not at the despair moment that everything is about to collapse and the democracy is ending tomorrow. It is definitely in a crisis, but it's not as big as everybody makes it out to be. It's not an eminent crisis. It's not a collapse. It is a issue that is going on globally, I think, for many countries. And I hope that future episodes you listen and I will go in depth and try to make sense of this. But I felt like the first episode had to be one where you understood where I was coming from and trying to dissect things. It sounded like a lecture, which I didn't want it to be. But people appreciate the, the thoughts uh, that I gave to that. I will not lecture in future episodes. That's for sure. Um, okay. Well, I think that about wraps up my first episode. I will enjoy editing this. This is a little longer than I wanted. But I hope to record again later this week and post that sometime this weekend and continue to build the show from scratch. Have a good night. Take care.